It is so unforgivably irresponsible for the activist doctors who have gone on the news, and they've done this in America, to attack me and attack my book and say that young people will kill themselves because of my book. That is an unforgivable statement by a doctor because they know that suicide is, is itself a contagion. And they that is something that no decent mental health professional would ever say in public over and over, and they do it. That's the level of callousness and, and, and frankly, ide ideological obsession of the young woke activist doctors. Abigail Schreier is an independent journalist who's a graduate of Columbia College, the University of Oxford and Yale Law School. Her writings regularly appear in the Wall Street Journal, in Newsweek and other widely read publications. She's appeared on the Joe Rogan Experience and Jordan Peterson's Dialogues podcast. Her recent book, Irreversible Damage, The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters, has become one of the most discussed and I think important books of our era. Uh, Abigail, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. Can I um, cast a wide net? Can I ask you to say, what is the central argument of your book and why do you think it's generated so much heat? So um, the central argument of my book is that, um, you know, the gender dysphoria, the severe discomfort in one's biological sex is something that's been around for a hundred years, at least we've have a hundred year diagnostic history of it. So it's something we know about and it always began with little boys predominantly, certainly always began in early childhood, mostly little boys between the ages of two and four. And some of these boys would grow out of it and many of them would become gay adults and some would continue on and, and, and become what we used to call transsexuals. In the last decade, out of nowhere, the leading demographic claiming to have gender dysphoria and wanting to transition to the opposite sex is teenage girls. Teenage girls who are doing this in friend groups, teenage girls who are coming under the influence of trans influencers on social media, girls who are being celebrated for their new gender identity in the school system. And it's a it's a very, it, my, my book's an investigation into why. why. Why are these girls suddenly deciding that their problem is gender and, and obtaining hormones and surgeries so easily. Well, thank you for the overview. Uh, and um, if we could start with some, some basics. Now, I, I understand that those uh, categorized as intersex might formerly have been known uh, under the category of um, hermaphrodites who have physical or uh, uh, other or abnormalities that are they're not normally part of this debate about transgenderism. It's different because it's a, this is a very confusing debate for parents, say, of kids at school. It's, it's crept up on them. What do all these terms mean? But we're really talking about people here who have a psychological condition where they feel that they're the opposite sex to the one that they actually present as. And no one wants to be judgmental or harsh or unfair to people who are really deeply, sincerely struggling with these issues. But how did we go from an approach of, of deep concern and sympathy and commitment to psychological care of those who thought they were in the wrong body to the outright affirmation? I mean, you're only allowed to affirm, it seems, their sense of being born in the wrong body and even casting serious dispersion 
uh, on people such as Jermaine Greer or J.K. Rowling who, who, who put up the notion that men can't be women and women can't be men. Right. So the hypothesis of my book is that this is a social contagion among teenage girls, meaning they don't have typical gender dysphoria at all. What they have is a social contagion, a way of explaining and understanding the very real pain they're in. They're in a lot of psychological pain. We know the rates of anxiety and depression are very high for this cohort. And the girls look to the culture and, and at different eras, prior eras, they, they have learned from the culture that their problem is they're too fat. And that was what was known as anorexia or bulimia. And that's how why it spread so much within friend groups. And today they look to the culture and say, I know what this is. I'm supposed to be a boy. Yeah, well, that's it's extraordinary. Um, to clean up one other thing, you're an investigative journalist, uh, not a medical health expert. Do people try and say, well, you ought to be a medical health expert to know anything about this and to write about it? Um, yes, I get that a lot. I think it's ridiculous. Um, of course, who uncovers medical scandals? Um, journalists, most often. I did exactly my job. I interviewed a tremendous number of experts, and I reported on what they had to say. And what they had to say was, and and so in some cases, they didn't want to go on, you know, on the record under their own names, but in many cases, they did. And what they were ringing the alarm bells about is the fact that there is almost no medical oversight and tons of push from within the medical community to affirm young teenage girls whose problem actually probably isn't gender. Nonetheless, they are fat, they are fast tracked to hormones and surgeries, which can do irreversible harm. And in that answer, you're revealing a deep compassion for, for girls and others who are struggling with this issue. What you're really saying is it's about misdiagnosis and a, right. a, a sort of a, a you know a, a sort of extraordinary um, societal push uh, to endorse something that actually isn't going to solve the problem because the problems are elsewhere. Yes, that's right. In a sense, this book has nothing to do with transgender people, and I you know I mean that as someone who cares a lot about you know transgender people. I've, I've met a lot of wonderful transgender people in the course of writing the book. But the the, the book is, is really about a copycat phenomenon among teenage girls who are in very real pain, but have mislocated what the source of their pain is. So they, they don't have typical gender dysphoria. And, and for that reason, are very unlikely to be helped by the transition. And we're already seeing uh, very high rates of regret that's a really significant point. We'll certainly certainly seek to come back to that and Kira Bell, the whole European, British experience and what have you. But but there's another aspect of this uh, that you've written that, that really almost chilled me because you see it in so many areas now. And, and it's what might be loosely called activism. And you actually wrote, I think I'm quoting this accurately, we're certainly seeing in the United States a young generation of doctors and therapists who are activists first and doctors second. Their ideological commitments precede their professional investigation. And indeed, uh, what, some six or seven years ago, um, the authoritative classification in America of psychological disorders, the uh, DSM-5, I think it's called, changed the term gender identity disorder to gender dysphoria. Can you um, explain what that change meant, why it's so significant, and why, to what extent it was potentially driven by activism rather than sound thinking and, and, and sound medicine? Sure. 
To, to be honest, I'm not sure that that particular change was driven by activism. I happen to have interviewed in my book the man who chaired the committee to write the DSM-5 entry. And, um, you know, and he was also on the committee for the DSM-4. And they had a really robust and open discussion among the experts on gender dysphoria as to why they might um, choose a less stigmatizing term. Um, it's still, of course, in a diagnostic and statistical manual of, you know, mental health disorders. That's that's the name of the, the compendium. But I'm not sure that particular change was activist driven. But what you're seeing now is, is far worse. You're seeing doctors, young doctors who attack me, who attack anyone who points out that, hey, these seem to be really hasty transitions. Young women who can't get a tattoo are having their breasts removed in the United States without even a therapist's note. And that that kind of, you know, uh, raising that point and asking why and whether this is a good idea is it's just not usually the things that doctors would attack you over but but unfortunately today the the young doctors are 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 there is a group of young doctors young scientists who are so woke and so ideologically bent on a conclusion they've begun with that they will not countenance any questioning of their protocols this is deeply concerning. Now, uh, in Australia, we're like America, we're, we're a federation. And in one of our states today, parents whose child came home and said, I think I'm trapped in the wrong body, would be genuinely and legitimately concerned that in contrast to say the, the kid coming home and saying, I think I'd like a tattoo, you could say, look, we don't think that's a good idea. Why don't you wait? Wait for six months, wait for 12 months or whatever. And then We'll talk it over and we'll think it through. But if you were to say that to a child who said, I think I'm trapped in the wrong body, we want to wait, let's work this through, let's have a look at the numbers and do the research, you actually literally could find yourself before the law for not affirming them and the woke brigade, if I can put it that way, at the very least would be screaming at you that you're placing your child's life in danger. And and you, you have, I think, a major problem with the so-called um, immediately affirm approach to gender dysphoria as opposed, as opposed to wait, see, let's talk this through, let's look at the numbers. The numbers are really interesting and we'll come to those in a moment ago. Do you think there's a good reason to think that a teenager could be wrong about that self-identification of being in the wrong body on the numbers and on your research? Well, of course, not, not only are they you know, likely to be wrong or, you know, in this, especially in this case where they're so under the influence of, you know, their peers, but we know something about teenagers. We know they take, they're much more likely to, look, adults make bad decisions too. Okay. But, but, but we tend to trust adults to make those bad decisions. Um, we don't tend to trust teens because they tend to make bad decisions under the influence of peers, meaning their peer approval means so much to them in those ages, you can't really expect them in many cases to exercise good judgment. Um, this is something that psychologists have been able to test and show about teenagers. They're much more likely to engage in reckless activity if their peers approve of it. So I think that that is you know where, why we haven't historically trusted them to make these these irreversible you know decisions and you know lo and behold we're seeing already really high rates of regret i mean any any week you go to visit youtube you see new detransitioners young men and women but especially women coming out and saying i i never should have done this 
where were where were the safeguards? Where were the doctors looking out for me? Yeah. Now, um, can you just tease out a little bit more what you learned about the psychological uh, disincentives uh, or distinctive, sorry, of, of teenage girls versus boys in this whole environment, how they think things through, their dependence on peer group. Indeed, I think um, you've, you've mentioned a couple of times too that um, in these strange times when Funnily enough, the sexual revolution seems to have done a lot of damage to romance, that, that a lot of teenage girls um, are very close to their mums, which, which is terrific, but they're not engaging in, in, in sort of early romances in the way that people of my generation, I nearly said yours and mine, but you're much younger than me, um, uh, we might have. So, so there's, 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 there, there's not only the psychological distinctiveness, I suppose you could say, factors, but also the social factors that are are making it a very different world for teenage girls at the moment. That's right. We know we're seeing the long, loneliest gen generation on record, as, as psychologist, American psychologist Jean Twenge referred to this generation. They spend a lot less time with each other in person and a lot le more time online. So they're, they're not getting the in-person comforts. They're being tortured by the online images and falling under the influence of online influencers. And unfortunately, these very unhappy girls are being promised that if they just start a course of testosterone, all their troubles will go away. And so part of what they're catching on uh, through social media would be a reinforcement uh, of being led down a path and having that constantly reinforced because of this problem of, uh, of, of following your line of interest and the way that that plays out now with social media. They're not getting the alternative view, so they're increasingly locked into a view, this is my problem and, and, and here's the answer, and that's affirmed all the way. That's right. I spoke to a young woman, Benju, who talked about at 13 going online and experimenting by identifying as trans online, and she was showered with affection and congratulation from adults, and it made her feel amazing. She was 13 years old. She she was not had trouble socially. She had a difficult you know family life, and she was being showered with congratulations by adults who told her she was so brave and they were so proud of her. And eventually, of course, you know many of these adults reached out and asked for you know pictures and things like that. They weren't actually so friendly, but the influences that are available to young people today and um, ready to encourage them down this road. That are, are really legion. And, and somehow or other, there's a status now associated with being a victim, being someone who's in need, who's been misunderstood, who's been pushed aside uh, and not reinforced. There's, there, there, it's almost, uh, a friend of mine put it as though uh, the new uh, victims are the new aristocrats. There seems to be, even amongst kids from, uh, girls from, middle-class backgrounds who really have been quite materially fortunate, but they're lonely and they feel victimized and isolated and that victimhood thing emerges again. That's right. You know, at the very moment, these young women are trying to individuate. They're being told that a lot of what they are is bad. They're being told that being white is unforgivable. They're born with the irredeemable sin of racism in America. They've, you know, we've largely bought into that, certainly at school. Um, they're being told that being a woman means to be a victim. They certainly get that message through um, in, in a bad way. It means being abused. Um, so they certainly get that message from online porn, which is, tends to be very, very violent. So the 
and these these girls aren't spending that much time in tr with each other in person. They have trouble making friends. So, you know, the temptation to escape into this identity that's so valorized at school and with their therapists and with their teachers, it's, it's very seductive. A friend of mine who's doing some research in this area towards a PhD in Australia uh, told me that he is beginning to think that porn, you just mentioned it, is quite a factor for a lot of girls here because um, if they are socialising with boys, they're being asked to do things that they just find abhorrent or if they try them are uh, deeply painful and hurtful. If they're not, they're seeing it or hearing about it on online and they're thinking, if this, what, if this is what I have to put up with as a girl, maybe I'm not so keen on it. Is that a factor as well? Absolutely. Um, online porn is very violent. They see it at very young ages. And remember, you know, in America, especially, you know, I don't, you know, I don't know what your, your movies are like, although I, I know that many of them come from America, but we yeah. have essentially stopped making romantic comedies. So this generation, you know, really pins its hopes, you know, the things that young women used to pin their hopes on were the romance they would see on, on, on the big screen. And today when they go to their screens, what they see between men and women is really, is really scary to a girl of 11. Frankly, it's scary to older women too, but especially to young girls who are just, you know, starting to think about romance and sex for the first time. It, it, it dismays me to stop and think. We've had a, a, a lot of emphasis recently about poor behaviour in our parliaments in this country, uh, men misbehaving particularly uh, uh, and girls being the victim of, of poor behaviour. Um, and we seem to have managed somehow or other to have so scrubbed romance out of the situation that that um, sex has moved from being the ultimate expression of intimacy and respect and love to one where it can be just an expression of loathing, hatred, denigration and destruction and lack of respect. And this is uh, nothing short of, of, of a human tragedy to my way of thinking. Um, one wonders whether many of these young people have any notion of of romance and of love and of commitment and of tenderness and 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 joy in relationship. It really is a tragedy. I mean, these young people are having less sex by far than prior generations, even less likely to have a kiss or any romantic involvement. And and look, you know, it's it, it goes along with a certain level of unhappiness. They're a desperately unhappy generation, you know, by by every metric. Um, now, and I'm not saying that you know young young teenagers need to be having lots of sex. You know, I'm not. I'm not saying that, but I'm, I'm talking about even romance, even touching is far down, is way down for this for this generation. And and of course, touching is very important in human uh, happiness. Well, we, we certainly know that, don't we, from the Romanian um, uh, orphans uh, who grew up dysfunctional, essentially, because they were not picked up, not hugged, not touched, no physical contact. But um, the, the raw numbers are really quite staggering. And I think between, in just five years, from 2015 to 2020, there was a 400% rise in referrals for children with gender, uh, gender identity issues at the Tavistock Centre, which is a very interesting place in London. Uh, and, and a big shift from boys to girls being treated. Uh, and in 2018, 2% or 2 in 100 of American high school students claimed to be transgender, as opposed to the historical figure 
from among the general population of 0.01%, one in 10,000. So they're now saying the numbers are even higher in America. They're much higher than when that study was taken, even. They're now saying upwards of 10% or something, I mean, of adolescents. Very, very high rates of identification as LGBTQ. Remember, these are kids with almost no romantic or sexual experience. But they are they are choosing exotic identities that sort of win them praise from their peers. Right, and you wouldn't see that as as simply they're able to talk about it now, so they're coming out. Whereas once they hit it, you would see that as being driven by social factors. Right, because you know I, I'm often asked about that, and and the reason I I do think that it's driven by social factors, of course is because the stigma has gone down for everyone. So we should see a large rise in older women, women in their 30s, 40s, and 50s coming out as transgender, but we're not seeing that. We're seeing the same age group that falls for every other social contagion, and we're seeing it within peer groups. Yeah, that, that, that sort of figure alone, or that reality alone, should, should uh, cause people to ask some very dark questions, uh, deep questions. Uh, what about the split between male and female? I mean, it used to be mainly boys, you said earlier, but that's now been reversed. That's right. Now it's overwhelmingly uh, young teenage girls with no childhood history. So you can see it really doesn't look like traditional gender dysphoria at all. Um, and and for, probably for that reason, these girls who, who do transition, um, you're, you're not seeing, you know, the satisfaction and, you know, good signs of, of, of happiness and well-being that you would look for by objective measures. Um, so, you know, which, which is the reason I wrote the book. If these young women were thriving, I wouldn't have written it. Um, but, but they don't seem to be at all. That's a really important point. I mean, to those who would say that you're being cruel or unfair or not scientific or whatever, we face this reality that as adults, we ought to stop denying our children are caught in a culture war of our making and they are deeply unhappy. Our numbers in Australia reflect that. Why people are not being more honest and asking themselves the hard questions about what's happening in our society and in our schools when you've got record levels of depression, anxiety and self-harm, I think it's a very poor reflection on us. Can we tease this out a bit more? What about the sort of socioeconomic backgrounds of the girls who are presenting in such large num numbers? Is there... Is there a pattern emerging there? Are there um, uh, racial distinctions, for example? Um, is, is it happening across the board or is it largely, as I don't want to put words in your mouth, a, a white middle class, middle income um, bulge here? It seems to be a white middle and upper middle class phenomenon. Highly educated parents, um, highly anxious girls, very precocious, very bright. Now, look, I've also talked to minority parents who are going through this, but, um, you know, and, and actually minority adolescents who have, who have transitioned, but by and large, um, it does seem to be, um, you know, uh, driven by white girls. Also, you know, it should send uh, warning bells off about what's happening here, what's really happening here. Um, to come to Kira Bell, the uh, young English lady who must now be about 23 or 24, went to the Tavistock Centre, I think as a 13 or 14 year old, uh, had nothing but the affirmation model, undertook a course of drugs to um, uh, you know, turn her, she now speaks with a deep voice and shaves, and deeply regrets the fact that she was 
subjected to the affirmation, affirmation, affirmation model, I think I'm right in saying that she says that she may not have listened if she'd been told to wait, but she wishes deeply that she had. And the courts made some very profound uh, uh, um, uh, findings, uh, including that uh, children under the age of 16 were not in a position to be able to make these decisions on their own, which flies absolutely in the face of the medical activism that is so rampant that you spoke of earlier. What can we learn from the American, from the, the British experience, and, and 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 has it started to inject any common sense anywhere? Well, certainly hasn't injected much common sense in America. I mean, we have almost the identical protocols in America that they have in Britain for you know immediately affirming and fast tracking these young people to transition and. The British court, the British High Court of Justice, was horrified when it examined these protocols that young women in great states of distress who were minors were being fast-tracked to, to surrendering their um, their fertility um, and, and committing you know, irreversible damage to themselves um, at ages when they really didn't have the capacity to consent. Um, this should have sent shockwaves through American medicine Australian, you know, as well. And I can tell you in America, it did not. It was largely unreported in America. People turned the other way. And the young activist doctors, and you see this all the time, activist doctors and activist lawyers at, in America, they, they work very hard to discredit and smear the detransitioners as if they are somehow disloyal for sharing their own take. And in fact, when 60 Minutes are, you know, are well, well um, you know, watched, news program tried to air an episode that de dealt with women like Kira Bell, young detransitioners, women who in America who felt they were fast-tracked and regretted it. Um, activists swarmed the, you know, um, the show and tried to get them not to air it, tried to get, I think it's NBC, not to air it. Um, so you see it's, it, it's, they're, they're treated terribly detransitioners. And that's what they come up against if they dare come forward with their own experience and, and their own feeling that this is way too fast for these young girls. Abigail, you're a, an investigative journalist and investigators, you know, we owe, Western society owes investigative journalists a huge amount because traditionally you've relentlessly gone after the facts, after the evidence. You know, where does the evidence lead you? A sort of uh, you know version, I suppose, of the, of the sort of scientific model. Why? What you've just described is now so common as this sort of confusion of thinking with feeling, um, and 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 a refusal to engage with the facts, even when they are so disturbing that any sane person would say we've got to stop and listen and look here. What has happened, in your view? You must have seen a lot of this in your life as a journalist. This massive shift that's really accelerated over the last decade or so to, to the point we now have, where the facts don't seem to matter very much. And I think one of the reasons is um, social media. We are living in an era of profound intellectual conformity in America, certainly not one that I've ever experienced in my lifetime. I was born in 1978. And um, I've never seen this kind of intellectual conformity. And a lot of it has to do with, you know, everybody getting in line on Facebook so that, you know, none of us is canceled and that sort of thing. Um, and, um, and, and so we're absolutely afraid to look at evidence. 
And in fact, if you dare to share evidence, you see this with, you know, Brett Weinstein, who tried to talk about and Heather Hying, who tried to talk about some of their concerns with various vaccines. They they lost, you know, they their YouTube channels were demonetized. You can lose real income. You can lose friends. You can lose your family pictures if you dare examine the evidence in America. And, and that's when social media will even allow it, because very often they just censor things they don't want you to see. And yet there is a tremendous pushback and you're, you're part of it. I mean, you, you've been ruthlessly honest and very courageous in standing by what your research reveals. Um, part of what I'd like to talk about towards, you know, in, in a few minutes is, is how do we as ordinary individuals and how do people listening to you me and talking now, grappling with all of this, withstand this barrage of emotionally charged uh, hysteria that's directed at you if you dare to break the conformity? Look, I don't know. I, I think, to, to be honest, to some extent, I was just, you know, sort of meant for this. I mean, I can't, you know, it sort of works with my personality in a way that it doesn't work for others. I don't, I'm not sure why, but I, you know, I, uh, you know, I guess a, a psychologist would tell you I probably highly disagreeable or that sort of thing. Um, but I think that the, the truth is the emperor's has no clothes. And the more people realize that everybody knows this, I have been contacted by people across the political spectrum. And I mean, across the political spectrum from the furthest left all the way to the right who say, you know what, I really liked your book and I agree with it. And it's because the book is really just common sense. It just calls for caution and examining the hypothesis of whether these girls are acting under social influence and whether they should be getting this drug, these medications and surgeries with so little oversight. That's it, that's my terrible sin. And the idea that that's somehow dangerous as the American Booksellers Association recently called me is ludicrous. I mean, it, it really is laughable and Americans are really waking up to that. Yeah, that's well, that's that's encouraging. And indeed, a quite senior journalist with a left wing newspaper in Australia recently told me uh, they were going to write a story on this and quote something that I'd said. Uh, and uh, she actually fessed up to me. She said, we've decided not to write it because every time we write on this, we get slaughtered by both sides. Now, to drill into the numbers again a bit and to go back to this idea of affirmation, we're told that you have to affirm lest you push the child towards suicide. Uh, now, the first problem I have with that is that I thought if you were concerned about people engaging in self-harm, you didn't talk about it. But that's what you're immediately told by the activists in very loud, voluminous terms in no uncertain ways that, 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 that you're risking it. Uh, and I gather there's no evidence for it. But in fact, you suggest there may be evidence for precisely the opposite, that there may be a correlation between the rise in transgender affirmation and a mental health and suicide crisis amongst girls. And I'd just be interested in it. Am I understanding that you may have seen some of this? Well, I think that, that, that anxiety and depression go along with looking for answers in the culture as to what's wrong with you or what's wrong with me. Why do I feel this way? So I do think that, that that's part of now, that's not all of the explanation, but I do think that's part of why these girls are at, you know, high rates of, of suicidal ideation. But I want to say something about what you just said. It is so unforgivably irresponsible for the activist doctors who have gone on the news, and they've done this in America, to attack me and attack my book and say 
that young people will kill themselves because of my book. That is an unforgivable statement by a doctor because they know that suicide is, is itself a contagion. And they that is something that no decent mental health professional would ever say in public over and over, and they do it. That's the level of callousness and, and, and frankly, ide ideological obsession of the young woke activist doctors. Yeah, I, I, I take that on board. That is my understanding, and you've spelt it out in very blunt terms. And I think there's a challenge there for anybody with a, with a shred of intellectual or moral integrity about them to take that on board and to be more measured in what they say about this because the evidence is, is telling us quite clearly. You referred to something very interesting again a, a moment ago about people who have buyer's regret, who later in their lives deeply regret what they've, um, what they've done. And there are more and more of them all the time. That, again, should send off the warning bells everywhere. It, it should. And I, I just want to say, you know, the young women I've, in, I've interviewed and I've come to know in the last year who have detransitioned, these are wonderful young people. They're, you know, young women who detransition, their life isn't over. Sometimes people talk about them as if their life is over, and it really isn't. These are remarkable young women who have achieved a certain level of wisdom um, based on what they've been through. But but life is certainly hard because they did do these things to their bodies. And that's not something any of us would want for our young, you know, for our daughters, for, for young people, especially if they're going to regret it. Yeah. Um, I was in Britain um, in 2018 and there was a story about Tavistock at that stage uh, in, in the newspapers. Again, it didn't get a lot of publicity, but it was there. Uh, and it was a bunch of doctors warning that... Um, uh, one of the problems was that these girls particularly didn't have explained to them that puberty blockers very likely would mean that they could never have children and that they were calling for at least that to be put before the children and who, who were suffering in this way. And the parents, part of the rejoinder was that the girls are so absorbed by what they've learnt, the affirmation they've had that you talked about earlier, that they don't stop and think goodness, I might want children one day, so they won't hear it anyway. But it seems staggering to me that, as I understand it, talking about irreversible effects and, and, and regretting it later on, that going on puberty blockers and not having it explained to you that it may mean you'll never have children at an age when they're not thinking about not wanting children, it's not top of mind, but they will, most, most people further down the road will, that sort of dishonesty just seems to me to be, you have to wonder whether it points towards a money trail as much as anything else. Look, I've talked to, you know, parents who weren't warned of that, parents who took their kids to gender clinics, um, you know, believing that this was the only way to save their kids from suicide. And were never told by the doctors they saw that this could lead to, lead to permanent sexual dysfunction. Um, so, you know, the amount of pushing this, this that goes on in in the United States is really egregious, and the fact that a book that that asks for caution, because ultimately that's all my book urges is caution. The fact that that book would be so you know castigated um, is is just just shows you sort of that we're in a grips of a kind of you know you know illiberalism um, that I, I hope we're I hope we're waking up from. Tell me something else. What did your research, did your research reveal a great deal about the um, 
family structures that are more likely to lead a young person to a state of confusion and unhappiness. I know that's a sensitive subject, but it's one we can't run away from, I think. Yes, people often ask, and, and the answer is no, this does not tend to happen in divorced families necessarily. I have seen very happily married parents, but look, I'm, I'm returning, you know, for my, for my next book, I hope to return to this generation because even young people raised in, in to stable families where the parents are still married, um, we're seeing very high rates of anxiety and depression in their young people. So I, I do think it's an ongoing mystery as to why and what to do about it. Right. That's interesting uh, and important to know. Uh, but a sort of related question, do we know anything about <clears throat> um, the influence of, of, of sexual education in schools, relationship training, um, pastoral care in schools, in the education system, generally speaking, we had a program in Australia, an anti-bullying program. It was called Safe Schools. It became very controversial, very controversial indeed. And an independent review found that it inflated the percentage of people who were allegedly transgender, and it taught children, encouraged them in the view that their gender is entirely up to them. To what extent can we know um, whether schools are partially responsible or what's happening in our schools? Right. So part of the investigation issue. I did was into the public school system. And I looked at California, which is, you know, probably our most progressive public school system. And um, I found that we were that they were teaching from kindergarten up um, this very radical gender ideology started, you know, with five year olds, you know, preschool, what we call kindergarten and um, all the all through the school system. And of course, this encourages the idea that if there's something it, it teaches kids outright, that only they know their true gender. And there's a whole system in the school ready and waiting for them to declare one of their exotic gender identities and then to fill out a form so that they promise to keep it this from the parents. So this has definitely been going on in, in America. And of course, then when the young person reaches adolescence and goes through a period of distress and sometimes you know, feels bad about themselves, the idea that this, that their source of their distress is gender readily leaps to mind. Then you must have a lot of parents coming to you. You really must asking for advice. How do I handle this? What general advice do you, and can you, can you safely give without any up on the wrong side of the law, well, let alone public, public opinion? Sure. What, what well, I'm not. Parents? Okay. Um, I, I am. I'm flooded with parents. I have so many parents. I probably have talked to well over a thousand parents at this point. Um, but I'm, you know, I, there are a few things that I, I tell. I mean, first of all, I'm not a psychologist. I always say that. But a few things I, I do think. Um, certainly pushing back on gender ideology in the schools is a must. I think depending on the age of your daughter, getting her off social media is really important. Um, and And this is perhaps the most important thing of all you know, trust yourself as the parent. If, an, if a so-called expert is leading your daughter or child down a path that you don't think is right for her, trust yourself to know better than these experts because these so-called experts are doing at this rate, I think a lot of them are doing more harm than good. And yet they seem to be on the winning side. I'd imagine you see health professionals uh, right around the world now who dare to challenge this finding that they're not just on the outer, that their careers are somehow damaged by it. Right. So, so 
It's true. They got a big head start because a lot of parents, especially liberal parents who were more open minded to these experts, I think, in America, they they took their parent, their children in good faith to these so-called experts who they couldn't imagine would go behind their backs in this way. But but unfortunately, a lot of these social workers, therapists, teachers were convinced that these short amount of time they spent with the child, maybe as little as 45 minute session, one 45 minute session per week, that was enough to know that the child was transgender and they were willing to help help the child in secret to figure out how to transition. That was go that has been going on in America for some time and it's led to the explosion. You know, it's part of what's led to the explosion that we're seeing. I know the research in Australia shows that uh, uh, one of one of the top of mind issues uh, amongst voters in this country is in fact ideology, as they put it, it might be loosely called, in the classroom. Uh, and it reflects that deep fear of, of, of not knowing where they stand and how to deal with uh, the whole situation. If, if, if their child comes home and says, I'm trapped in the wrong body, it's a very, a very frightening Thing for people to have to deal with because it's uh, it's only what 15 years ago the idea would not have occurred to people as logical and defensible. Now you're somehow evil and wicked and outside the circle of respectability if you dare to question these ideas. It, it's very very confusing for parents and for the broader community. Yes, and I think. Look, the reason at the end of the day, my book has always, you know, generated so much, um, you know, alarm it is really because it reaches parents across both, you know, across the political aisle uh, aisles. Um, you know, my book is not a conservative book. It's not a liberal book. It really is a common sense investigation for, you know, that that a lot of parents and even adolescents have really felt, found benefits them. And because it's not easy to pigeonhole. Um, because it, it, it really isn't about any one policy. Um, I don't advocate for a political, you know, any political outcomes in the book um, because it's just an investigation that has really changed the minds of a lot of parents. Um, they, they, the activists really want to shut it down. Well, if you argue, as I would, that politics is and should be downstream of culture, politics shouldn't come into it. This ought to be a matter you know, for um, our real lives apart from politics, and politics ought to reflect the community's views on these things. Uh, but there's uh, the, the the problem with social media in many ways is it's given a microphone, a, a, a megaphone, uh, beyond anybody's wildest imaginations for the propaganda or propagandization of of extraordinary views and taking them forward. How we wind that back in an age like this. It's it's a really tough question, but are you optimistic that we might have reached a high watermark here? That that the whole thing is there's so much overreach, for want of a better word, that people might say, "Whoa, come on, we're going to back off. We're going to retreat to something a bit more sensible here." I don't know. It's hard for me to express optimism, but I will say this: 
that it's important that we, as you say, um, leave politics downstream from this. This isn't about politics. Our young people are getting so harmed by social media in so many different ways. And one of them is that they are being exposed and, and really soaking in these really radical ideologies. Um, and, and they're just not spending enough time with each other. Now they are they are they self-harming in rates we've never seen before. I mean, what will it take to pull, you know, pull young people from their from their these devices? And I, I think the answer is going to have to be parents finally putting their foot down. Yeah. Well, look, I can only uh, say to you, I, I salute your uh, courage and your determination. And I think what what you're doing is incredibly important. Thank and you. You're saying when you say that you're not quite sure how this is going to play out, that in itself is quite chilling. But at least you won't have to die wondering whether uh, you saw a problem and didn't seek to address it. And I, I just think what you've had to say is incredibly valuable. As is the book, which of course I recommend to anybody watching or listening to our conversation. I I can't thank you enough and salute you enough for what you're doing. Thank you. That's very kind. I really appreciate that. Thank you for watching this episode. If you value vital conversations like this one, please like, share, subscribe and join the conversation.